Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The New Statesman. In this episode of the New Statesman podcast, Freddie Hayward interviews the Shadow Education Secretary Bridget Phillipson and the Conservative MP Bim Afalami about how the UK can increase productivity and boost skills in the workforce. The conversation was recorded at the New Statesman's Politics Live conference earlier this year. Registrations for next year's conference are open now. To secure your place, visit the website nsmg.live. Here's Freddie. My name is Freddie Hayward. I'm the political correspondent at The New Statesman. We're talking about growth and productivity. I think growth, the cost of living, questions around productivity are some of the most important factors in how voters are thinking about politics. And I think it's going to dominate politics up to the next election. So I'm delighted to have such an interesting panel with me. I've got Bridget Phillipson, the Shadow Secretary for Education. Bim Afalami, who's a Conservative MP and member of the Business and Trade Select Committee. So I'm just going to ask each of them to offer a few thoughts. Then we're going to have a bit of a conversation and then we'll open up to you guys. Bridget, do you want to kick off? Yeah, sure. Thanks very much, Freddie. Great to be with you and to see so many people here today. Just to begin really by talking about the direction that Labour's been setting out around this. The first of the five missions that Kia launched was around growth and the fifth mission is all around opportunity. And I do think the two are obviously very strongly connected because it is a cross-cutting issue. If we're to deliver the health and net zero missions that Kia has also set out, then we'll need a national mission around skills to, in a real sense of purpose and energy about all of it. I just want to set out briefly just the approach that we're taking with a few kind of key points around how we're doing things. So it's about how we think about skills and how we approach it overall. So skills for individuals, skills for companies, skills for our community and skills for our country too. First of all, where it comes to the individual, it's probably an obvious point, but I think it's a crucial one that often gets overlooked, which is that skills aren't purely an economic imperative for our companies or for our country or for cities. They're about individual working people having the chance to get on in life and to earn more, to be included in the workforce and to take on new skills and opportunities during their working lives. So it's about individual success, but it's actually about all of us too. And I think for me, it's really important that we do locate that discussion in our education system overall, but we understand it through the prism of the aspirations that people have both for themselves and for their families. And I think that's why training at work, the chance to take on new skills at work and apprenticeships in particular are so important and so well understood because it's the chance for people to learn throughout their working lives. And I do think we need to have a shift as a country in how we approach this, that skills and education aren't just about what we do when we're in the classroom at school or 
at college or at university. It's about all of us having the chance to do new things and, and to, to take on new skills as we progress. Uh, secondly, skills for companies. So we believe that the government are just making it too hard for companies to provide the training and skills that the existing workforce will need. The apprenticeship levy just isn't working in the way that it should. That's why we've said we'll change it. We'll convert it into a growth and skills levy. So allowing for greater flexibility, up to 50% of that, to go into wider skills training for people during their working lives too, with a real focus on how we give people a chance to take on new skills in those areas of the economy where we do need to see growth and where we really could be leading the world. Skills for our communities too, so for our cities, for our towns, for every corner of our country, but better responding to local challenge, to local economy and to local needs. What I hear time and again right across the country from our council leaders, from our mayors, from local businesses, is that they want to have a greater say in what's going on. They say they spend far too much time applying for different pots of money, lots of different reporting lines, lots of complexity. And we need a simplification of that process with a better connection between the relationship locally and regionally with what's going on from the centre and a real sense of direction. Again, that's why we've said that we would combine and devolve the adult education budget to make sure that we've got a greater degree of coherence in terms of what's going on there. But we do need accountability running alongside that too. And that's why we've set out how Labour would build a national skills task force, Skills England, that would bring together that local and regional push that we need to see around skills connected to a wider national agenda that connects to our industrial strategy and connects to the Migration Advisory Committee to And I think that would mark a real step change in terms of how we approach things in this country, partly because we talk about the skill system in our country. We don't really have a skill system in our country that works as coherently as it should. And that really is what needs to change. We're also determined that where it comes to the workforce, we need to do a lot more to train people here as well. That's why we've set out really ambitious plans on the NHS, so to train more doctors, more nurses here. And Wes Streeting said a lot more about how we would double the number of medical school training places, for example. But all of this does connect to that wider message around growth, about how we're to grow our economy, but we have to invest in our people and in our skills. There are real opportunities that come of the climate transition. I'm sure we'll talk about that more later on as well. And skills will be absolutely essential to making sure that we're in the strongest possible position to compete as a country. Someone's got to be leading the world on this. I think it should be us here in Britain. And I look forward to having that conversation. Thank you very much, Bim. Great, thank you. And it's a pleasure to be here. I'll say where I agree with Bridget and what she said, which is I agree that the UK should lead. I agree that skilling people needs to be done by companies, needs to be more flexible. If I were to take you down the productivity rabbit hole, the Bank of England does put out these things, which they don't advertise very much, and they're called working papers. And they're a bit techie, but if you go into them, it tells you a lot about what the economists at the Bank of England, not just the chief economists, but various of the very clever people who work there, what they're thinking. And there was a working paper put out recently that talked about the productivity challenge in this country. So why is it that our productivity has for a long time, for a generation, been lower than our partners in Europe or the United States, Japan. And what they focused in on was since the global financial crisis, the manufacturing sector in this country, its productivity has declined by 0.65% every quarter compared to other countries. Broadly speaking, it's declined at a rate 13 times greater than every other sector in this economy. Why I say that is the productivity crisis we have in this country is in large part due to the complete fall in productivity in manufacturing. Now, The reason why I focus on manufacturing, and I know we're talking about broader things here about skills, is that this is one area that we can make a huge 
difference, whether it be apprenticeships, as Bridget mentioned, whether it be linking up with university degrees in the more classical sense with good quality jobs. If we focus on manufacturing and do that right, we can significantly improve the productivity of this country and improve the life chances of hundreds of thousands of young people who do not and should not have to necessarily move to the hubs in maybe London or Manchester where there are lots of service sector jobs. They don't want to do those jobs. They want good quality, high skilled jobs near where they live. And we can have manufacturing in all parts of this country. And I think as a country, we need to focus on manufacturing. If we do that, we deal with a lot of the productivity problem. But where I'd finish is simply to say this, in order to do that, yes, there's always place for new policy, new thinking. Of course there is. But we often, in parts of our country, we do this really well already. There's something called the Automotive Council in the West Midlands. Some of you will be familiar with it. It was set up in 2009. It has got proven results in improving particularly the automotive sector in, in that part of the country. And they've done it through partnership from local government, local business leaders, local financial sector, and others locally. And if we empower more regions to do what they have done, and they've proven they've done it over the last 13, 14 years or so, we can improve our productivity, not just in manufacturing, but in many things in this country. And I think that linking up that education skills and business and government working together is a way in which we can do that. Thank you. Thank you, Bim. Just a quick follow-up on that. I was at a talk the other day with Torsten Bell from the Resolution Foundation. He yeah, was a very making, smart man. Indeed. And he was making the point that we shouldn't over-focus on manufacturing in part because we're a service-based economy. And if we want to make productivity gains, we should focus on the service sector. I mean, what would you say to him? What I'd say to him, and I may have had this conversation with him before, is that in large parts of our services sector, our productivity is very good already. What I'm saying is how we level up in a country like this is not just to focus on the things that we do well already. It's to focus on things that we are doing less well, particularly when those things are things that you find all over the country, in big parts of forgotten parts of this country, over generations. And we've continually struggled to, to deal with that. We can deal with that if we can improve our productivity and manufacturing in this country. And then, Bridget, you spoke a lot about the green transition, and this has been key to Labour's national mission. Do we have the skills to fulfil and achieve that mission? No, we don't currently, and that will have to be a really big priority. But I think there is a real appetite from business to make that happen. I think with the right level of training and support, there are lots of people that could be supported into the, those new jobs that will be created. But I am acutely aware, and I come from a part of the country where we lived through a big industrial change that took place, where that wasn't properly managed and where people weren't supported with the change and the shift that took place. We have to learn the lessons from that, and we have to make sure that as we're making that transition, that we are giving people the opportunities to upskill and to reskill. And I think there is, particularly where it comes to the apprenticeship levy flexibility that we've set out, I think there are real opportunities and will be real opportunities around modular learning, around additional upskilling that people can undertake during their working lives. I've seen some absolutely amazing examples of colleges and universities working in partnership together around apprenticeships. But what I'll sometimes hear from the apprentices themselves is that they get access to this amazing kit, particularly in, in manufacturing and advanced manufacturing, as Bim was describing. Then they go into the workplace, the people that they're working with day in, day out don't have the same access to that kind of upskilling. And I think with greater flexibility, with short courses, with greater employer and trade union involvement, we can do a lot more to make sure that we're giving people opportunities right throughout their working lives as part of that transition too. What's the key thing that Labour's offering on solving this problem that you've identified? Do you think, for instance, the apprenticeship levy will solve the problem? No, or that's your, your version of it. That's not the entire answer. It's a, I think it's an important part of the shift that we need to see in giving people opportunities right throughout their working lives. 
But the the National Skills Task Force that we would establish, Skills England, would be about bringing together the work right across government of the key government departments that lead in this area with a real focus on how we make sure we're delivering those skills for the future. We would make sure that Skills England determine that levy flexibility is available. It's being put to the right purpose in the right areas with a real push around addressing the skills gaps that we're seeing at the moment, but also with a real push around those new jobs and opportunities that will be created. What I hear from businesses time and time again is that they feel that skills is not taken seriously enough by government. There isn't coordination across government and that will have to involve working with training providers, with colleges, with trade unions, with businesses. I think with a shared sense of purpose and a shared sense of vision about what we can achieve, we can really drive forward change. Is there a contradiction in Labour's policy between Skills England, which is a national body that's going to oversee this strategy, and your desire to devolve the adult education budget to combined authorities? No, I can see why people might believe there to be a tension there, but actually having a national body coordinating that, working with our regional combined authorities, with our mayors, with local government, I think would be incredibly important in addressing some of those local priorities, but making sure it's aligned with wider national strategy too. I think I would also stress that it's important that there is coordination with the Migration Advisory Committee too, around the Industrial Strategy Council that we would establish as well. I think it has to be all of that working together. And what business tell me time and again they want is a longer term plan for the shift that we will see in our economy so that they can make investment and business decisions on that basis. And that's the kind of longer term planning, the longer term direction and the stability that a Labour government would seek to bring. The interview continues after the break. New Statesman subscribers can listen to all our podcasts ad-free via the New Statesman app. It's available to download on iOS and Android. The links are in the episode description. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth. Featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Just a little bit more on Skills England. What is that? I mean, is it just another quango? Is it another umbrella organization that we can sort of devolve responsibility to so the government doesn't have as much attention and scrutiny? What is it? No, ministers will clearly still have to make decisions, but recommendations will come from Skills England around where levy flexibility could be put to better use to make sure we're putting it putting it into the right places and we're getting the best outcomes for it. But it's about bringing government together for that national mission around upskilling and reskilling. If we're to make sure we have a successful transition, if we want to provide more opportunities, if we want to increase growth and productivity, then government has to be working together, all parts of government working together effectively with business, with trade unions in that sense of partnership. So I'm surprised that we actually haven't talked about money very much. And we have to be honest that a lot of the reason why we have difficulties, whether it be government, central government, local government, or indeed in businesses, is the money available to do a lot of these things. 
I thought that your question to Bridget around the tension potentially between the central government and the local government is an interesting one. It's my view that we've really got to get to the heart of what is the role of the central government state in this and what is the role of local people working with local businesses. If we can devolve much more fiscal responsibility to metro mayors in particular, and I mean money, not just powers, you know, I confess the conservative government over recent years has been, we've been very keen to devolve powers. We haven't been as keen to devolve financial responsibility. I think we need to devolve more financial responsibility because if you do that, take, for example, West Yorkshire, I think the budget for West Yorkshire is something like 400 million pounds, something like that for that mayoral authority that Tracy Brabin, I think, is the mayor of. The central government grant for that is about 70% of it, about 280 million, something like that. If we were to have, for example, a discretionary charge of £50 for every about 2.2, million residents, you have a £50 charge that's discretionary, or they could move it up to £60 or move it down to 40 you would reduce the central government spend to below 50%, to something like 40%. Now, the reason why I mention all that is the freedom and the responsibility that would be in that region for the people in that region, for the businesses in that region, for the understanding in that region to make their own decisions around skills, I think could be transformative. That's the sort of thinking we should do. I'm not saying it's the answer all the time, but I think that is one type of approach. I worry that an overly directional approach from central government, that's not mistaking the motive of that. I'm not being party political. I know that what Bridget's trying to do is she's trying to do the best thing she can. But I just worry that the central government, if we have too much control from central government, we actually stifle the thing we're trying to generate. And as I said in my opening remarks, local areas often know exactly what's right in their region and they just don't have the money to do it. What are you suggesting, like a Barnet formula for local government? What I think is that where central government is really effective is by setting overall strategy, in particular providing funding, because the central government can borrow the cheapest than anyone else. We need to allow local areas enough financial freedom to make decisions. If we just say, make all these decisions, but we've got all the money, you just don't get to where you want to get to. And so to be very direct, it's my view that the treasury in central government should spend less and local areas should spend more. And on skills in particular, I think that could be transformative. Bridget, would you agree? I think we've sought to reach a number of areas of consensus, but I think I'll have to part company on a few a few different parts of what Bim was just saying there. Not least because what we've seen over the last 13 years has been a real hollowing out, actually, of lots of the really important institutions that are central to, to delivering skills in our country. And I think speak to any further education college and they'll tell you just how tough things have been and continue to be. And it's very stark in terms of the shift that's taken place in the funding that's available to them. Now, I would love to say that an incoming Labour government could fix all of that overnight. But sadly, Bim and his colleagues will, if we win the election, will have left us a pretty tough inheritance where it comes to the shape of the economy. I'd be very reluctant to move to an approach where I think from what BIM is suggesting, some additional kind of tax that we're placing upon local people during a cost of living crisis. Forgive me if I've misunderstood the point that you're making. I was saying that the tre- I'm saying this, it's the Treasury spending less, right? So I'm saying you just rebalance where the tax comes from. I'm not so sure about that, but I think what we've seen more widely is certain areas are just not able to raise money in the same way. And what we've seen over time in the last 13 years with a reprofiling of how government asks local communities to raise money, how money is spent, has involved a shift to spending more money in more affluent communities. That's just how it goes. And the Prime Minister during the leadership campaign in the summer was arguing for more money for Tunbridge Wells. 
Yeah, quite. But if I've understood BIM correctly, the idea is much more so that the money would come from central government and we've got a national tax base and therefore we don't have to rely on things like council tax, which is often very regressive and produces unequal outcomes. So that sounds as if that's what you're saying. We would devolve the adult education budget to combined authorities so that they can make decisions closer to their employers, closer to the labour market, closer to local skills need. But I do believe there has to be national coordination running alongside that. The scale of what we're seeing and what we will need to see where it comes to transition and the skills that will be essential as a part of that, I do not think local communities can do that on their own. Okay, I'm going to go to questions now. So I think we have a roving mic. So do raise your hand if you have a question. I, I have, someone's left one on my seat before I arrive. So thank you to John from Uxbridge for that. Bim, I think this one might be for you. How can we trust this government with upskilling when they cut FE funding, lecturer pay, kept changing qualifications, abolished the career service? When we talk about how we're going to do things in the future, yes, of course, what somebody's done in the past is relevant. But what we need to focus on is to say, when it comes to FE, it is clear that we need a funding settlement for further education if we want them to play a leading role in all the things that we're talking about. That's obvious. In relation to lecturer pay, I would argue that for universities, if I don't, if I don't misunderstand, I would argue that actually most of our universities financially are doing pretty well. And that is up to them autonomously to sort that out with their lecturers. And when I see the amounts of money that some of their senior management's being paid going up by many times, I don't think it's justifiable they've cut lecturer pay in the way that they do. And I think they can afford it. In relation to careers service, yes, careers advice is very important. But to go back to what I was saying about local areas taking responsibility, I happen to think careers is much better devolved. And that's the sort of area where local areas with just a little bit more money could do a lot better. And I've made, been clear about that. But there was something else that I meant to say earlier, which is this. We currently have about a third of graduates who don't go into graduate level jobs, okay? About a third with all the debt that places on them. And we all understand that. In fact, I suspect many of us will know somebody in that position. I know, I do. I think that this is a disgrace and we need to rebalance and give better opportunities for those young people and then bring them into where we have skills deficits, apprenticeships, various other ways of training that can often lead to later on degree apprenticeships. But it is a scandal that we have a third of people not in graduate level jobs and largely speaking, not satisfied with their outcome with the debt that they've got, many of which will never pay that debt off. And yet we have skills gaps in areas where they didn't need to go to university, at least in that traditional sort of way. For me, that's something we need to urgently look at. And for what it's worth, and I haven't cleared this with Gillian, though she'll probably be annoyed that I suggest this. For what it's worth, I think that we need to move to a model. We always talk about parity of esteem, whether it be between graduates or apprenticeships or whatever. And I think businesses like Amazon and many others are, are doing that and they're in business. They're hiring more and more apprentices because they know the value that they can bring. We need to move to a model where we have three tracks. You have a sort of purely academic track, and they're studying something like classics or history. You have something that's mixed academic and vocational, which is, I don't know, medicine, veterinary science, engineering. And then you've got a purely vocational track, but they all are given the same broad status. I think status is a really important thing for all of us. And if we could do that, we can get these younger people out of big debt, um, having studied degrees that they're not getting graduate level jobs for, and we can move them into the skills that we need for the green transition and many other things. I think we have a gentleman in the corner over there, also in glasses. Thank you. Uh, we want to build more houses, many more houses. We need them. But where are the skills and the trades going to come from to build those houses? How are we going to get more builders, chippies, electricians, plumbers and the like to do these sort of jobs and train them up? Thank you. 
Bridget, do you want to go for that one? Yeah, absolutely. I agree with the question. We've got really ambitious plans around the need to build more homes in our country. That is a great opportunity to create more jobs and give young people more opportunities where it comes to skills. Picking up on what Bim was just talking about before, where it comes to careers guidance. What we've said is that we would make sure that all young people get access to careers guidance at school and college and running alongside that two weeks worth of work experience. So young people do get to see what's out there, see the opportunities that are available. And I know that many young people, when they have that opportunity, it gives them a real insight into what they would like to do. It also sometimes gives them an an insight into perhaps what they then determine is not right for them. So I think there is a lot more that we can do in opening up opportunities for young people. But absolutely, we need to see a greater push where uh, in construction, net zero, you name it. There's a lot to do. Thank you very much. And I think we have a, a, a woman in the corner over there. How important is childcare reform in boosting growth and productivity? Bridget, I mean, there's been lots of debate about Labour's childcare policy recently. Is it universal? We've talked and what I've talked a lot about is delivering a modernised childcare system from the end of parental leave to the end of primary school. The first step that we've set out around that was breakfast clubs. So universal breakfast clubs in every primary school in England for all children, because parents know that your childcare needs don't end when your children start at school and making sure there's flexibility there for parents too but actually that we're giving children a really great start is important because all the evidence around breakfast clubs is not just that it makes a difference where it comes to children getting a good start to the day in terms of the breakfast. It's the wider impact it has in terms of behaviour, attendance and outcomes. I'm clear. Preschool, preschool, childcare. Yeah, we need to see further reform in this area. I think, of course, it is important as a labour market intervention supporting parents to work. I think the government have lost sight of the wider argument, which is we need to make sure it's really high quality provision, that we've got a workforce strategy running alongside that to support people working in childcare. And also that we're making sure that money that the government puts into early years education and care is closing that attainment gap. Too many of our children arrive at school already having fallen far too far behind their more affluent peers. And what was absent from the budget, whilst there was additional investment going in, which of course I would welcome, was a lack of a wider strategy about how you make sure that you're delivering better outcomes for children, making sure they get a great start, as well as it being regarded as a labour market intervention as well. Has there been a labour U-turn on childcare in the past six months, say? No. No? Okay. We'll go to the corner over there. Thank you. Hi, my name is Sadaf. I'm from the New Economics Foundation. Bim, you mentioned about status and how important status is when it comes to jobs. But what about wages? Wages have stagnated for now 40 years. And a lot of the wages that have stagnated are in the productive economy. And a lot of my friends, even junior doctors, are fighting for better wages. And status is very much linked to also your income. That's why we have teachers, doctors, nurses, and also construction workers, or even in the arts and humanities. That are not going in graduates are not going into that and actually shifting to the financial economy and the financial sector. So what are we doing to increase wages so then people feel like they can get on the housing ladder and they feel like they're actually part of society and are thriving and not just surviving? Because that's yeah. the situation we're in right now. Great Thank question, you. Bim. It's a very good question and I agree. You agree but on the collective I bargaining that, I agree requirements? That, I agree that it's really important with a central point, which is it's really important to raise people's wages. When I say status matters, I didn't say that was the only thing that matters. Wages, of course, critical. But the core way in which we do that is being more productive. The reason why, and I pick the United States, I'm not saying the United States society is perfect. It has its problems. Of course it does. But the reason why in large parts of the economy, their wages are higher than other countries is because they are more productive. And if we increase our productive capacity in this country, we will increase our wages. And the reason why I talked about manufacturing, A, because it's rare to hear conservatives talk about manufacturing. I think this is important. 
not just to talk about financial services and various other things. The reason why I care about manufacturing is if we can raise the productive level in things like manufacturing or in oil and gas or various other areas, that will raise the wages and will stop everybody who thinks that they want to earn a bit more money going into the services sector, which is, by the way, part of the reason why our inflation problem is worse is because if you're a predominantly services-based economy, then the wage rises that we've seen worsens our inflation in comparison with more balanced economies. But what's to stop capital or business owners just taking that increase in productivity in terms of profits as we seen in the past 30 years or so. And the second question would be, do you think there's any connection between dwindling trade union membership in the past 30 years and a stagnation of wages? What's to stop businesses pocketing that? I suppose formally nothing because you can't force a business to pay somebody more, but you would just hope that we've got a sufficiently competitive economy that if one business is doing that, they won't get good people. And if another business pays people better, all the best talent will go there. So you've got to hope that the dynamics of a market economy will work properly. And that's one of the reasons why we have a competition of markets authority to do that. And your second question, forgive me, what was it again? It was about trade unionism. Yes, exactly. That wasn't just a way of me buying time, I promise. Or maybe it was. I do not think there is a direct link for the following reason. If you look at not just this country, if you look at all countries in the OECD, EU, G7, all of these countries are facing quite similar trends in relation to wages. They all have very different approaches when it comes to trade union membership, trade union law. So I don't think that necessarily is the critical aspect. Unfortunately, we are going to have to end it there, but I would like you all to join me in thanking our great panellists today. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with Freddie Hayward and his guests Bridget Phillipson and Bim Afalami. This episode was produced by Adrian Bradley and edited by Chris Stone. Anush and the team will be back on Thursday. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.